0: welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Kevin Bayuk, a partner and worker owner at Lift Economy. My guest today is Tom Chi. Tom has worked in a wide range of roles from Astrophysical researcher to Fortune 500 consultant to corporate executive developing new hardware and software products and services. He's also done something which I think is exceedingly rare, contributing in a significant way in creating and scaling projects with global reach. Yahoo Answers, you know, growing from zero to 90 million users as an example. Not common that people get to touch that many people through their work in some way. Uh, he recently served as head of product experience at Google X or X developing technology such as Google Glass and self-driving cars, and most recently has launched a new venture fund at One Ventures with a focus to catalyze a world where humanity is is net positive to nature or is a net positive to nature. Tom is also on the board at Buckminster Fuller Institute. So I'm excited to speak with Tom because, among other things, Tom is rare or unique amongst people I have met and interacted with who have a fluency with and affinity for technology and innovation that's grounded within a vision of a world where all core human needs are met in ways that don't detract from the environment around us. He also has actionable insights to contribute to next economy entrepreneurs and how to rapidly prototype possible and meaningful solutions at least cost and I enjoy Tom's company. I find him to be compassionate, patient, and he lives with an authenticity and integrity that I deeply admire. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Kevin. What a nice intro. I was wondering if we could start with a little bit of your story. What is the path that brought you to the work that you're doing today?
1: Yeah, so right now I'm the managing partner and founder of At One Ventures. And the thing that brought me to it is, I as a technology executive, I worked at Microsoft Yahoo Google, I worked on things like Outlooks, I worked on email, I worked on things like search so if you've used any of those things, I worked on those things too That's all great and it meant that in two thousand and six, you know I was kind of like living the technology executive lifestyle and i I got a place in Hawaii my wife was excited about living in Hawaii, which is actually where I am right now, though I'm not in that place that we first got. But because I had that place in Hawaii we lived right next to this beautiful coral reef and I truly love that reef. Like a lot of times I would I would go out there even before breakfast, you know, because I just wanted to go see and and be around all the beauty of the reef. And in the year 2011, when I was working at Google X, I witnessed that reef go from every color of the rainbow and life and all pockets and directions to gray and brown and no life in about two months. And what had happened is we experienced a mass bleaching event. And it wasn't just our reef, it was almost 10% of global reefs, you know, all in the same year. Well, first off, like when you really get to know a reef, like you know that it's kind of like a, a community, there's like particular fish that live in particular places. So like, you know, I would go visit them when I would swim the reef and seeing that place empty out, it was like, watching your community or your neighborhood, like everybody in it dying or, you know, and the whole thing like falling apart. There was something about that. Well, I mean, I think it's kind of obvious some of the things about that where I was like, something needs to be done. And that's when I started, you know, asking around and finding out from coral scientists, you know, what situation we were in. And it wasn't just our reefs. It was a large chunk of reefs in the planet, but luckily there wasn't mass bleaching events every single year. But even back then, you know, the coral scientist I I talked to, the consensus was we had you know, something like 35, maybe 50 years before we extincted all shallow water reefs on the planet. And I was like, oh my God, that's probably gone in my lifetime. And for a while, I was kind of looking around for, man, who's going to be able to do something about this? And I kept talking to more and more researchers and more and more folks that were doing restoration. And I realized we weren't anywhere close to the rate of restoration that was going to be able to make the difference. And I also realized that. So I was born in the late 70s, and the first mass bleaching event was recorded in the early 80s, which means that before I was born, nobody could have done anything about it because there wasn't a problem yet. And by the time that I die, it'll be gone. And nobody after I'm dead will be able to do anything about it because it'll be gone, which means the only people that could do anything about this are alive right now. I got to the point you know, where I stopped asking the question of like, who's going to be able to help here? And I was like, at least part of it's going to be me. You know, I'm alive right now. I'm capable right now. And nobody can do it afterwards and nobody can do it before. So whoever's around right now is the team. And let's try to do what we can.
0: Well, thank you for responding to the call. That's a great motivator and good background that led you to this work. And you formulated this statement, which maybe we've heard in other places, but this idea that humans can be net positive to nature. What do we mean by that? Can you elaborate on that idea?
1: Yeah, so, you know, my formal training is in physics and then after that I formally studied electrical engineering with a focus in signal processing and robotics, but the physicist in me basically, you know, when I started looking at the magnitude of the problem, the physicist in me basically said, well, I mean, what's possible, right? Like within the laws of physics, what's possible? And I kind of looked at like where all this damage came from because why are the reefs dying? It's, it's actually just a side effect, basically. The ocean's warming because the whole planet is warming you know, and destabilizing, and climate's destabilizing. And I looked at the physics of that and I looked at the physics of all the industries and, and I was like, well, you also can look into the physics of what makes nature healthy. And I actually didn't see anything about economy that would necessitate that we have to harm nature in, in the process of doing what we need. That actually there was plenty of things that were well within the laws of physics that where human activities could lead to both prosperity for humans as well as a huge amount of prosperity for nature and really supporting the foundational natural processes which allow all of life on the planet to exist. And when you start to realize that it's not a physics problem, right? There's no, some things are like true, like, you know, zero sum games from the physics perspective, right? If the energy's here, it's not there and that's what's up or the mass is here, it's not there. And that's what's up. But like in this particular case, it's like, no, it's not a physics problem. So it's, it's an economics, and it's an engineering, and it's a design problem. And these are all disciplines that I've worked on in my career. And I was like, well, why not set the goal there? Because the way that i had been hearing the narrative ahead of this, and I felt like I was an informed person, I like, was reading IPCC reports and like looking at various things definitely more intensely, you know, after 2011 when the reef died. But even before that, you know, for about a decade, I've been tracking that work in various capacities. But like, I realized that a couple different things, we're communicating it all wrong. And we were also aiming for such a depressing goal, right? Because one and a half degrees C is, make no mistake, it's a disaster. And of course, two degrees C is also a disaster. And five degrees C is like ridiculous disaster right? But like one and a half degrees C is a disaster, right? We're at one degree C right now and everything is on fire. And and we also haven't seen the long-term playthrough of some of the damage that is happening, even at one degree C. If like we could stop it right now, we would still be, you know, seeing the extinction of a huge percentage of the species on the planet, you know, the invasion of equatorial diseases to all different corners of the, the planet, you know, the the melting of significant, you know, ice and irreversible damage to to ecosystems all around environmental refugees. This is one degree C. This is the disaster that we're already at. And if we just stayed at this level for a couple more decades, we're going to see all of that. Half a billion, you know, environmental refugees, tons of unnecessary death and disease. That's the one degree C disaster. And right now we're not even allowing ourselves to like imagine we could do better than one and a half. And it's like, well, why don't we state the goal that we actually want? Even if the goal that we actually want, you know, that humanity is a positive nature, even if that takes 500 years to get done or a thousand years to get done, let's just go for what we actually want in going for what we actually want. Let's start now. Like in my life, I hope, you know, that we get at least three to 5% of the way there. I'm very realistic. I don't think that like we repair all the damage of thousands of years of. Land use changes from agriculture and hundreds of years of industrial economy creating, you know, a huge amount of greenhouse gases. I don't think we get that done in a decade or 50 years, but like, can we take a significant chunk of that? And can we start to move toward the direction of humanity becoming a net positive nature? Absolutely. And, and let's go for a goal that is not just the acceptance of this, you know, depressing disaster scape.
0: And so an example of net positive to nature, a simple example might be humans need food, right? We consume food. And the way in which we do agriculture or primary production, food yields, today, largely we know some of the problems. We deplete watersheds. We destroy soil fertility. We erode soil. We emit carbon and other greenhouse gases, destroy habitat. Yeah, yeah. And so the possibility is, and from a physics perspective, it's well known that it is possible to grow food and yield food for consumption that when you look at the field, if you will, or the the agricultural system that produced that food, the fertility of the soil is stable or increased. The biodiversity has either been maintained or potentially even benefited from the practices the watershed has actually benefited in terms of water quality or, you know,
1: and become more resilient to drought and flood. Yeah. And and what's crazy about plants is green plants in the soil, their basic standpoint is to be building fertility and soil health. It actually, we had to go to extreme lengths to develop a type of agriculture that would erode down the soil and, and like burn down its, its fertility and you know, kind of nutrient based. It's like, we really had to bend over backwards in order to go and fight against what nature is trying to do for soil. One of
0: my teachers to, to, likes to say, it's, it's not that we got agriculture wrong. It's like, we got it dead wrong. Like if you could go the exact opposite direction as as poor, you know, really struggle to do. But we've done that for so many other aspects of life as well. So in terms of other things we need, we need shelter. Can you tell me about like, what would Net positive to nature look like for sheltering humans?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, one thing that I like to share in order to reframe how people look at things is because a lot of times there's that sense it's like, well, you know, we can't care that much about nature. It's going to hurt the economy, da da da. And I like to, you know, share the idea that no, the economy is a subset of the ecology. And if you don't believe me, look around you. And there's not a single thing that is around you that was not either mined or grown, which means directly comes from nature. Now, maybe you don't know how it was mined or grown, but like trust me, every single thing around you, every product or service you've ever experienced was mined or grown immediately from nature. And that, of course, that means everything in the economy is a subset of things that we directly took from nature. Now, how does one you know, start thinking about shelter or some of these other things in that context? Well, with that mind or kind of idea, then first off, you got to look at mining. It's actually relatively difficult, maybe impossible to be a net positive to nature in the act of mining. Now that said, there is, you know, some materials we want to take out of the earth, but like we need to be treating those materials extremely preciously. We need to be taking up to a certain amount and then continue to recirculate those extremely valuable materials for as long as we can. That is the way that you start to like Tamp down on the on um, the damage of mining, and you can also do restorative things afterwards, like one of one of our portfolio companies works with a lot of mining companies to be able to restore the ecosystems after strip mining or other activities have taken place and I will say it's not a hundred percent as good, but they close the gap quite significantly the post damage of mining is a lot less than it could have been. So if you kind of say like, okay, let's take some of those things into account and have the post damage be as small as possible. Let's, you know, mine exactly how much we need, you know, in order to have enough of that material in circulation and not more. And then let's ask a way more interesting question, which is what percentage of what we're using can we move to grown instead of mined? Because there's a lot of ways to do things that are grown in ways that are net positive to nature. Not that we always do it, like when we plant monocultures with high you know, input agriculture, da da da, then that is not w- the way that you're going to be a net positive through growing things. But there are a lot of ways of growing things that can be a net positive to nature. And if you can shift the proportion of materials from mined to grown, or you have more grown materials, if you can grow them in ways that are net positive to nature, and you can tamp down on the damage of mining, both in terms of more ecologically sensitive mining techniques, host restoration, which is robust, And like actually hitting a cap and a limit where you where you move into continuous circulation in that kind of closed loop materials economy, then you can get to a spot where net net the things that we are making, you know, kind of turn that corner where our existence is adding more wealth to nature than removing it from there.
0: Great. So there's a number of things you said there that I think are important. So shelter, as food, shelter, but any human need we, from this physics approach, we can look at the source of materials that currently support meeting human needs. And one theme there is if we could shift to partnering with biology and biological systems, growing our needs, whether it's fiber or for clothing or textiles or whole cloth or our shelter's this kind of transition from extraction of minerals and ores and mining and that type of extraction, and then shifting towards biology is a major theme of becoming net positive, especially if we partner with biology in a way in the, with the practices that are net positive. I also heard you mention in there repair, um, this idea that uh, there's a tremendous amount of repair work to do, obviously socially, but also environmentally. And so with these, uh, where extraction has occurred, there are some of the technologies that you're investing in and researching and developing are ones that can do some of the repair. It's definitely on the menu for humanity as on our journey to become net positive. I think the one of the things that comes up as a barrier to some people cognitively is wondering, is there enough for everybody? We've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm curious if you could just respond to that general posit which exists out there. Obviously, we don't there's no way for somebody to say definitively yes, I guess. But how do you think about that question? Is there enough for everybody?
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually have a, a little passage in one of my talks where I, I kind of talk about the biomass of ants on the planet. And that sounds totally random. But it turns out that the, if you add up the biomass of all the ants on the planet, it's like 350 million tons. It's almost exactly equivalent to the biomass of all the humans on the planet. There's a lot of ways that we are similar to ants. So like one thing is biomass equivalent. Another thing is their social organisms. Another thing is their omnivores. You know, all all these ways that we are quite similar to ants. But one way that we're different is human beings eat about 3% of their body weight per day. So it's actually 2.8%, but it doesn't matter that much. So about 3% of their body weight per day. Ants eat 30% of their body weight per day. So when you have equivalent biomass and one party is eating 30% of its biomass, you know, like each day, and uh, and then the other eating 3%, that means ants consume 10 times more of the planet than us. And we're not sitting here in terms of like direct consumption, like that they need to in order to go power their bodies. And we're not sitting around thinking like, oh my gosh, ant overpopulation is going to ruin the planet, even though they're literally eating 10 times more food than us. And it's because it's not about the amount, it's about the style, right? And look, actually, you, know, you can even go further. There's a number of, of organisms on the planet that have way larger biomass than us. And we are not worried about the, you know, those species or, or those classes of organisms either because the style in which they do it is they generate more ecosystem services than ecosystem take in the process of, ex- of living their lives. That was another one of the inspirations for becoming a net positive to nature. Because really, every other organism does it, whether they have a larger biomass than us or a smaller biomass than us or like ants are equivalent to us. Then we've seen many examples, almost everything out there is actually doing a better job of this than us. And we just need to get clear on what the goal is. If your style of existence is one where you're creating more ecosystem services than more ecosystem take, then yeah, you can eat 10 times more of the planet if you wanted, just like ants do. So now that's it. I don't think we're going to have 10 times the human population. And that's great. Whether we settle at 10 billion, you know, or get up to 11 billion or it goes to 10 and it settles down a little bit, which are what the current models, you know, say is kind of in range or whether even one day we're at 20 billion or 5 billion, like whatever it ends up being, we already have many examples of organisms on this planet with significantly more biomass, significantly more ecosystem take. But have found a way to coexist and not just coexist, exist in a way where nature is healthier because they, they exist. Ants recycle nutrients. They aerate the soil. Like you can, you just get countless ecosystem services that, that we can list, which dramatically outstrip anything that's happening from their ecosystem take. And we've just chosen stylistically not to be like that. It's a choice that we made as a society. It's not a physics limit. It's not something intrinsic to biology because sometimes people, you know, chalk it up to that. It's human nature. It's just in the nature of things to, for us to be greedy. And, t- and it's like, no, well, we're in the nature of all these things, and they're not doing that. Right? There's, you know, unless you think that human nature is intrinsically worse than ant nature, I don't think anybody's arguing that when they say that. They may have depressing moments where they're like, oh, well, humans are always going to have this type of fight or whatever. It's like, no, but like, I don't think there's a single person who just argue that human nature is worse than ant nature or any of these other organisms that have somehow figured out how to be a net positive to nature.
0: I think that's spot on. And, uh, you know, we could even just look towards intact indigenous populations, which I forget the exact statistics, but something like 80% of the world's biodiversity is on lands that are currently stewarded by indigenous cultures, humanity taking care of and promoting the well-being of the, the biosphere while meeting their needs to live and thrive. So, stylistically, we've drifted, but there's the great return that we're we're a part of and in this great return towards becoming net positive, what are some of the mega trends i've I've always been enamored with your insights on what trends you're tracking and so I'm curious what are some of the big big things that you're tracking right now that influence your thinking, maybe even the thesis of uh, the At One Ventures Fund. But what are some of the big trends that we should all be watching?
1: Well, before we get to just like the actual economic megatrends, just to quickly build on what we were just speaking about, I think there's the possibility that we become the keystone species that supports keystone species, right? That would make it so that we basically create a wide allyship in allyship with beavers and buffaloes and, and wildebeest and every sort of organism that we know that creates a very large net positive footprint by existing. And if we became aware enough as a keystone species that we were the keystone species that would take care of all the keystone species and just make sure that, you know, we're not decimating them, make sure that, you know, they, they have like the, the space to live, then it creates like a, a kind of, you know, more than human kin allyship where like, it's not just us trying to go save the planet. No, no, it's all of us together. You know, the, the buffalos out there can be restoring you know, the soil and the grasslands and the beavers can be like healing hydrology. I'm doing a bunch of North America stuff, but you get it on every continent, you know, there's the appropriate thing. You know, the wolves can do what they do in order to have the trophic cascades. And, and, and it's like, yes, like, I think we are certainly smart enough to recognize what the keystone species are and we can choose to be the keystone species whose goal is to support the keystone species. And I think that's a way better thought process than human beings are the steward of the planet or human beings, you know, right? Like like that feels too low dimensional to me because like the beaver may be as important or more important than us. The wolf may be as important or more important to us in particular landscapes. And let's become a coalition
0: embrace that humility. No, I think that's a really important observation. Maybe, Maybe we're smart enough, but are we wise enough to embrace the humility of our role in partnership with the rest of the biosphere and those other key allies? I think that's a very important observation, so I appreciate you naming that.
1: And I'm naming a bunch of, you know, animal keystone species, but it's also true in plants. But I think, like, we get it. Like, we certainly have the systems of study that will allow us to understand when the presence of a particular species really enriched the ecosystem in a deep and profound way. And it's like, let's become the the species that is interested in that and really cares for that work. Anyhow, go into some, some mega trends. Yeah. I mean, one mega trend is I think the debate about climate is over, right? That's nice. I was very frustrated, you know, over the last 20 years because I I felt, you know, even back in the Al Gore, Inconvenient Truth Days, I was like, is this the right way to go communicate it? And then the entire, like, fight centered around deniers versus climate realists or people that were just paying attention. I'm not sure what to even call the folks that were not deniers. I remember during a panel, like, I, I kind of shared the thought, like, trying to go solve climate change by arguing with deniers is like trying to go build an airplane with people that don't believe in flight. You're never going to get to a sophisticated enough conversation to get anywhere on solving the problem. Like think about how sophisticated it is to build an airplane. There's a lot to it. And it's pretty sophisticated for us to like wake up, pay attention to the keystone species, pay attention to how we do all of material science, pay attention to how we do all of, of you know, industry, pay attention to how we do all of energy on and on, right? Those are very sophisticated conversations. And the centering of deniers basically meant that we were having this extremely stupid conversation for twenty years, and I was like, "No, we're never going to get there by by having that conversation. And it wasn't about building more awareness or like convincing points you know on a PowerPoint or whatever or like trying to you know get this one congressperson who's already bribed by by the oil industry to do believe a particular thing. It's like this felt like just a profound waste of time for me. So one, you know, mega trend is I think we're done with that, right? Like when there's, you know, fires in Oregon that are casting a pall in Chicago and New York and all the red states between Oregon and Chicago, and there's plenty of them. Or, you know, the people that like Colorado is a swing state. Yeah. So it's like just metaphorically half red, half blue. But people that grew up in California know that California, sorry, Colorado is famous for its like deep blue skies. And they've just not had that anymore. Like, it doesn't matter which political persuasion you came from, you know, that 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 part of the debate is over. So I think, you know, now that that is over, then we can start getting into the sophisticated conversations of metaphorically how to build those planes, like how to reconstruct industry in a way that is consistent with living on a planet together. And A lot of things need to happen. I almost like want to ask a question back to your question, which is like, which subset of places where you would you like to talk about the megatrends? Because it's all happening, or at least it's all starting to happen.
0: Well, building off the observation you made, you know, every year for the rest of our lives, more and more people will be having their coral reef moment, and hopefully, becoming engaged. and I think that's a really wonderful thing and gives us an opportunity for expanding our awareness and education and engaging in the complexity of the opportunity. I guess some of the trends that I've heard you name that I think are interesting, that I think would be beneficial for people to think about involve, you've mentioned, I believe, was it concrete and some of the perspectives that you have on concrete or materials or even transportation. You know, I've heard you talk about transportation in terms of what we can expect to see in the future, or with regards to transportation. But anything that you think kind of would be interesting to share around trends that affect this shift towards the potentialities for being net beneficial? What are the areas that we need to work on based on what we're seeing with humanity?
1: Man, yeah, there's there's plenty of things to say and and like this is my day-to-day work in the firm and in the fund. So, you know, around, you know, concrete and cement. Cement cuz cement is the part of concrete which, you know, has the most energy used to it, though there are things around sand mining and like the ecological damage from the the aggregates, you know, side of things as well. But like one thing that I share from our work in the fund is there's basically four industries that represent of industrial emissions. It's steel, aluminum, chemical separations, and cement. And it basically means like you got to go into those and like really focus on fixing those. Now, luckily, things like chemical separations, there is a lot of opportunity because a lot of the chemical separation things is from like heating, distilling, you know, these sorts of processes, like heat based, you know, processing of chemistry. And there's a lot of things that we're able to do with. Special filters, you know emulsives, all these sorts of things that that require dramatically less energy, and they definitely don't require the burning of coal or natural gas in order to go drive those processes and there's a lot of exciting technical innovation that we might be able to do on that front, which brings the the amount of energy and chemical separations down quite significantly on the cement side. you know we are looking at well, we both have investments in, and we're looking at advancing on a number of fronts, so like um you know, construction processes, which change the use of cement, like the movement to, to things like geopolymer cement, which has like an 85 to 90% reduction in the carbon emissions required to go produce the cement. And look, you know, an 85% or 90% reduction, that's not a net positive yet. But like going from, okay, the problem's this big to the problem's this big. That's a pretty good move. So like, you know, when we do this work in the firm, we're looking at both things. We're looking at things where it's like, Okay the damage is like this can we bring it down to a fraction of that damage you know and we're also looking from oh the damage is over here can we flip it to the other side and have it be a, a net positive you know kind of thing it's all moving in the same direction sometimes it's flipping the valence sometimes it is dramatically reducing the damage around steel and aluminum it's a little bit tougher these are high process heat type, you know sorts of things there are i would say early work that is happening and there is some okay grant funding and some okay venture backing in those areas. But there's still a lot more to do, whether it's in the electrochemistry space. or But it, it starts to get quite sophisticated as we talk about like the particular things that you might pursue in each of those areas. But this is kind of the way that we work in the firm. Like We will go and look at something like industrial emissions, right? Because one thing that people are not really talking about that much as they talk about the move to the cleaner economy is we have like an over-indexing on the PR side on electricity generation where it's like, oh, that's going to move to wind and solar. And that's fantastic. And we got to go figure out baseload and storage, you know, in order to go deal with the inter, you know, intermittency of wind and solar. And, and I think that's great. That's an important narrative. And I think that's super good that, you know, there is focus that is going in those areas. We also do things in that area. So I'm not against the work that's happening in that area, but like, that kind of being like the headline, you know, people don't realize that only 25% of emissions comes from electricity generation. 26% of emissions comes from agriculture, food, and ag. So, like, you need to be, be really pushing on that. You know, 15, 16% comes from these industrial processes that do not use electricity. They're just burning coal, burning natural gas, you know, burning oil in order to go drive like these, these industrial processes, whether it's steel, cement you know, chemical separations, what have you. And like, if you're missing chunks that are this big, you're, you know, you're going to miss the whole thing, right? And this is also a little technical, but I think your audience, you know, is a little bit further down the chain on this. Like those percentages are stated on a GWP of 100. If you think about like these critical 20 years or 25 years, then methane factor is a lot stronger, you know, than it does on on a greenhouse warming potential of 100. And therefore agriculture actually outstrips the other one's even more, right? And actually natural gas leaks and all these other things outstrip, like, the, like whether it's from landfills or industrial leaks or whatever, it starts to, uh, to be way more significant as well. So I think like, you know, because this has all happened in this kind of fitful, like piecemeal way, and some of the folks that like believed in this cause and, you know, like were better at PR than some of the folks that believed in that, you know, cause, then we have like a kind of imbalanced view of like what it means to get it all done. And and I'm not actually trying to fault or slow down the move to renewable energy generation. Let's do it. Or, you know, baseload and storage to go support that. Let's do it. We got to do all of it. Absolutely. But like people are missing that on a GWP of 100, that agriculture is 26%. Or on a GWP of 25 years, then like, yeah, it's probably more in like the 35% range. So it's like, we got to recalibrate it a little bit, or the industrial process emissions. It's like we got to recalibrate it a little bit. These things are quite significant. Things like air conditioning, HFCs, and fluorinated uh, fluorinated gases basically have as much greenhouse gas impact as all the cars on the road. And once again, that's on a GDP of 100. If you extend the timeline out, they're even worse than that because the half life that they have in the atmosphere five thousand years, fifty thousand years, depending on the F gas which means like we're making decisions right now with our air conditioners and refrigerators, which are going to last for hundreds of thousands of years on this planet. And I don't think that people recognize the depth of impact that we are having by making those decisions. And what we're having right now is massive heat waves in Northern Europe, massive heat waves. And even in places like India, where it's been traditionally hot, yeah, there's a big difference of 126 Fahrenheit versus you know, 105 degrees in the summer. And like, even though their culture and their houses and all that sort of thing, totally able to have like a hundred degree summer, 105 degree summer, 126, 124, nobody can live. Like it's going to lead to a doubling, a tripling of the amount of air conditioning in the world. And that would be equivalent to like a doubling or tripling the number of cars on the road. So like, we're basically just not getting ahead of, or like, we're not getting a kind of even handed understanding of all the different factors that are in play. And part of what we do in our firm and what I try to do through you know, the education and communication work that I do is to just make those things visible to folks so that we can, the, the people that are you know, well-intentioned money people can go and put their money to, in the ways that are gonna be the most impactful. And the people that are kind of the young and hungry designers, engineers, product people, the, the makers, the builders, the entrepreneurs, that they can go and put their energy into the places that are also going to have like the right level of impact.
0: And you've already mentioned some of the portfolio of the firm, not necessarily by name, but Dendra Systems doing some of the automation and ecosystem restoration work. You've talked about the need for better air conditioning and a high efficiency, low emission type uh, air conditioning, like Gradient is one of your investees. And then in construction, APIS Core kind of doing some 3D printing for building construction, just to name a few. And their construction method,
1: you know, works a lot better with geopolymer cement because you can 3D print just all the way up because the geopolymer cement, you know, sets in in a very convenient amount of time. And like some of the, you know, kind of the classic Portland cement, it's like you might need to pause in your printing and let things set a bit and then pause in your printing and let things set a bit. It basically would make the construction of buildings way cheaper and, you know, 90% less carbon intensive. And
0: create a demand for those materials, those geopolymer cements. And there's a number of food and ag related investments in the portfolio right now. I'm wondering if uh, for the listeners, if you could share kind of the positioning of the fund, uh, what stage, and just some of the generic stuff so people can picture it in their mind?
1: So the overall firm is called At One Ventures. The purpose of the firm is to help humanity become a net positive to nature. Our fund one is $150 million, and we've been deploying for a little bit over a year and a half. You know, We'll be raising fund two. I'll, I'll begin the fundraising process for fund two in about a year. And fund two, we actually anticipate is going to be significantly bigger more like you know 300 million dollars but basically exactly the same thesis because in fund 1 we're placing you know bets in 30 companies and we aim to own about 10% of those companies and in fund 2 it basically be the same thesis but we'll own between 15 to 20% of the companies and we're just going to do more of the same work because whatever we're doing right now seems to be working like both the companies are hitting their technical milestones their business milestones and they are improving in values, they have great values, and they're improving in value in a way that our investors are extremely excited about. So, you know, it's like, well, if that's working well, let's do more of that, right? Just do it twice the
0: scale. Double the scale when it's working. One of the things I'm curious, one trend that I think I've heard you talk about before, or maybe we've just discussed in general, is this trend towards decentralization as kind of perforce, as the need for resilience becomes more apparent, centralized systems breaking down and you know resilience and redundancy becoming more and more important. And we might be early on that trend. And we oftentimes think about resilience in terms of our environment and our communities, but there's also personal resilience. And this might be a big pivot in our conversation, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on as people are digesting the latest IPCC analysis, uh, what do you see as being ways in which we can maintain our personal resilience through what is present now and and what's to come?
1: You know, I kind of go back to that initial story that made me leave my career as a technology executive, like the grief associated with. Using a reef. And I think as people read the IPCC report and as people are going to experience a lot of the climate destabilization and the tragedies that come with it, there will be a lot of grief. I say this not because it's like, oh, you know, get ready to feel terrible. It's actually because it's a portal. Like grief is a portal. It's not something where it's like, oh, it's just a bad feeling. I can't be around that bad feeling. It sucks. And like, you know, like anything i can do to avoid grief what grief will will do is it'll erode a bunch of other things away and what you'll be left with is a clear realization of what you actually care about you know the reason that we grieve for loved ones that we lost it's like it becomes so clear to us how much they mattered to us and how much like we cared for them in our lives and the reason that we grieve for these environments that we lose is something similar there's something that is deeply motivating, deeply powerful, if you don't allow the kind of depression, you know, element of it. And look, that's part of the process, too. I'm not trying to say, like, oh, you'll just magically have grief and no depression. It's like, it's going to be in there. But it's like, if you don't allow that element of it to overwhelm, you know, your understanding of the experience, if you also leave a little bit of a room that this might be, an erosion process where meaning is left like what is left after the erosion is a clear contour of what is meaningful and what you truly care about and what your life is for and i think like that you know because we're going to experience so much pain in the coming decades around this and some of it will just become noise to us it's like what there's fires in turkey now oh shoot and of course if you're in turkey you're like ah Right? This, is, this is like you're just experiencing the, the grief directly, but it's like when it's like news, news headline, news headline, news headline. So you need to go fight against that sense of becoming completely desensitized and you need to fight against like, you know, being swallowed up by the depression of it. But if you can, and this doesn't need to be a, just a personal fight either. Like You can do it in community and I think most people do. Like you find the community that is able to be with you and get on the other side of it. But like, if you do those things, then grief becomes a portal. Like you will you will end up on the other side of it, really clear on like what you deeply care about and what the things that you must do, given what you deeply care about. That will be so much, you know, goodness for our civilization. Like a lot of what has allowed us to consume so much is like, You don't really care about anything, so why don't you buy more things? That's kind of a good stand-in for caring or having a happy experience. And I think when we're left with the contours of meaning that are left after the movement of grief, then that sort of message won't appeal to us anymore, and we're going to be a different kind of civilization.
0: Yeah. And may that become a trend for this falling in love with material and discerning what we actually care about, transforming our consumption patterns and habits. If we have that sense of clarity with a goal to become net positive, even if it's a multi-generational achievement or, or orientation, there's so much work to be done. Maybe as a Last question Tom. What are some of the things that you're seeing right now that are really inspiring to you? What's bringing you alive? I'm I'm sure your work and everything that the firm is doing is part of that, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to share with the listeners about what you're excited about, what you're really tracking, what's just even if it's just temporal right now, but I'm curious if there's anything grabbing your attention. I remember
1: like a month ago I was looking through our portfolio and I was just like struck at the ambition of it. That like Really warmed my heart because I was like, we stayed true to what we were going after. We actually saw deals that kind of came over the fence where it's like, yeah, we could probably make a lot of money on that. But it's like, does this really move us toward being a net positive civilization? Does this really like, you know, go for the level of ambition for the type of civilization we can be? And we passed on them. I feel so much clearer for that. Right. That's obviously kind of just like near in my life because that's what my day-to-day is. If people want to go see that, they can go to com slash portfolio. But like one media source that I really like, there's a podcast called For the Wild by Ayana Young and just really profound work, you know, worth spending a lot of time with and goes into a lot of depth with a lot of people that are on the frontiers. So I oftentimes will use that to go find new books to read, you know, be inspired about different concepts, play around with them in terms of like, how would that fit into? Because we didn't talk that much about like my practical operational skills, but like one thing I'm practically good at is like inventing, you know, technologies, deploying capital effectively, getting things to scale effectively, that's cool. But it's like, you also want to go connect with the folks that are on the frontier of like, well, what do you want to use those skills for? because you can use them to do any kind of thing, including things that are very damaging to the future of the planet. And to be able to go and, you know, have a wellspring of inspiration that like challenges you, expands you, you know, whether you're listening to it or you're reading a book or, you know, and there's other media sources too, but that one I feel is very rich.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Listening to what's happening on the frontiers and leveraging your skills, experience, and gifts to bring those ideas and possibilities to manifest in ways that can be net beneficial in terms of the impact to humanity in the world. Really appreciate you, Tom, for everything that you do and your attention to what matters. And There's a thousand things that we didn't talk about, even big themes that I maybe even said we would talk about in this interview. (laughs) But I think that means that if you have time, another time we'll have to do another episode for Next Economy Now and see what our listeners think. I'm really grateful for your time and all the work that you're doing. Again, the website, I'll put this all in the notes for the show, but at oneventures.com is the current site for the fund. Any other resources or things you want us to know about as Parting Thoughts?
1: If you want to just watch some of my talks, you can go to TomChi.com. It's just my name.com. Yeah, and it's called At One Ventures because it's about being at one with ourselves and nature and the universe.
0: Wonderful. Thanks, Tom. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's lift economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lift slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.